know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. All right, welcome to the Emancipation Nation. This week, we have a treat. We have Taryn Hughes, and she's with Forrest Hughes and Associates. And so this week, it's going to be less about Taryn talking about her journey and her story, and more about her helping the audience. And what she does is really focuses on trauma and the secondary trauma, the vicarious type of trauma, and provides, her organization provides that kind of support in the workplace. She's been doing this and studying this for a very long time. She studied this issue a couple of decades and has been working in this issue for a few years now. She works, goes out, and they train criminal justice, um, intelligence type of communities, social workers. Um, she's been involved in helping New York City school teachers and just wants to make sure that the helping community is healthy. So she's the one that you call on when you need the help and the support. They've worked with nonprofit organizations and they've been across the country getting contracts and coming in and, and doing various therapeutic type of modalities and helping healers to heal. So welcome Tara, I'm, uh, Taryn. I'm so happy that you could be here today. Thank you so much, it's a pleasure. Yeah, and I love, love, love the idea of what you guys are doing. So can you describe um, the name of the work that you do and what you actually do? Sure. So our organization specializes in compassion fatigue, which is a more friendly term for secondary traumatic stress. And sometimes it's, it's also crosses over into vicarious trauma support. Um, and we're really on a mission to change this paradigm from just giving out some, some tips and, and tricks and symptoms uh, around secondary traumatic stress and compassion fatigue and actually shifting the paradigm to when, where we can provide comprehensive support programs to people who are on the front lines. And that could include, like you mentioned, anyone from... Uh, so from social workers and nonprofits all the way up into law enforcement and criminal intelligence and um, especially professionals working in the anti-trafficking movement. Yeah, and you're based in New York City, correct? We are. We are. We're right in the heart of New York City, right next to Central Park. So we're, we're very blessed. It's very beautiful here. Yeah, and, you, and you're willing to travel. Do you have a um, specific, do you have a specific course that you facilitate or how, how does this thing work? If somebody calls you and says, yeah, my staff has a lot of secondary trauma, uh, what would you suggest and what do you do? Sure. So I often conduct a needs assessment with 
the leadership to understand what their concerns are and where their staff is at as far as an awareness and where their leadership is at as far as awareness. And then we have a few different programs um, that we recommend. I would say our introductory program is the, it's, very, it's a very comprehensive introductory program. Again, it's, it's spending less time on the symptoms because I find that most people that walk into the room, they know how they're suffering and they know how they're in pain. So we don't need to spend 90 minutes discussing those. And sometimes that can be a little triggering for people anyway. So we try to focus on the prevention and the mitigation strategy. So we have the introductory course runs in just different formats. So sometimes we go out three times and run it in a couple hour blocks. And sometimes we go out and run a full conference for larger groups. Um, and then after they've gotten a good foundation and feel like they're starting to put some actionable steps in place in their organizations, then we can look at some of the more um, specialized programs. Like, do you want to get your leader trained in how to lead teams exposed to trauma or do you want some coaching and guidance for the leaders um, so it really depends on the organization but we're always focusing solely on getting the staff support so we don't necessarily go into the trauma-informed trainings of you know how they would treat their clients or patients or students which is also important but we just believe that it's fundamental that you support your staff before you roll out trauma-informed practices. And, and we trust professionals um, that they'll take, this, they'll take this information, apply it to them, themselves first, and then that will help them automatically start the first steps towards a trauma-informed organization. Okay, so if I call you, you'll come in and you'll do a, an assessment of what my organization looks like or what they need, but you don't spend a whole lot of time because the people understand, you know, they're experiencing the stress and the trauma and the fatigue. So, yes. but, um, so what are the kind of things you're looking for when you come to an organization? It, you know, it really depends on which sector they're working in. Um, we're definitely looking at how much they're exposed to and how, um, Obviously, if there's any in-house support already, we want to find that out, like what they're already doing, because we don't want to replicate what they already have in place and what's already working. We ask different questions about if there's a loss of a colleague or there's a loss of a client, do you have any protocols set up? Do you have any support for them um, mm -hmm. after, you know, for the people that are they're working there? We, we also talk about... Um, you know, we want to find out if, if there's any discussion or any awareness around the secondary trauma exposure and if they're coming together in co-regulation already, if they're having um, conversations about the impact on them as a, a person. Um, but it's, there's, so many, there's so many variables, so it really just depends on the sector. But we want to see what's going on there and we want to find out how well they're taking care of um, themselves mm -hmm. and most importantly, each other because it's really about taking care of each other as well. And so if, if I operated an organization that worked with a lot of victims of trafficking, maybe victims of sexual assault or domestic violence, um, really heavy stuff, yeah. if you walked into my agency and I was doing an excellent job in terms of trauma and taking <laughs> care of my people, 
what would the agency be doing? What would they look like? So there's a few things that would, that would be ideal. If you are operating in environments where there is a high exposure to vicarious and secondary trauma, um, there would be debriefings for the people um, and your leadership would be measuring how intense a certain exposure is for a, or for a particular employee, for instance. So um, there's a really, there's a, there's been a really recent new ruling. It just came out last week, which came out from Australia, where there was a district attorney who had been assigned to 21 child um, pedophile cases. And so she was having to work with the witnesses back to back and, you know, obviously interview the children, survivors. And then she was also having to see the footage the video footage and the photo documentation of all the crimes. And she eventually sort of came to post-traumatic stress syndrome. And the court, this is really a fundamental ruling, which is gonna change a lot of the trajectory of how we think about keeping workplaces safe and keeping our employees safe. The court ruled that her, her city agency had a responsibility to break up the amount of intense exposure she had. Like that essentially one worker should not be assigned to 21 pedophile cases back to back with no mental health support and with no break and, and definitely ideally not assigned to 21 cases in a row. So they, they found, they actually, you know, found um, her, her case to be solid and they awarded her quite a large monetary settlement and they, basically for the first time that I've seen in the world said, employers have a responsibility, even governments have a responsibility to make sure that one single employee is not continually subjected to like high secondary trauma exposure without mental health support. And I think that's revolutionary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's awesome. So you're saying debrief, with staff. Yes. And that is critical because we did a study uh, where we looked at clinicians who had a client commit suicide mm -hmm. and um, looked at those clinicians. Some left um, that organization um, and we looked at what were the factors that helped them recover best. And one of the key factors was really having a wise and supportive supervisor. Yes. Those people that had wise and very supportive supervisors seemed to recover. Those people, or recover much better, those people that didn't went back to their books. They tried to, to re-look at their theories, their therapies. They tried to find out where they could have made a mistake. They were consumed. They had sometimes nightmares. They questioned their ability, um, you know, in the future to be a good clinician. And some of them, like I said, left the entire profession. So I think debriefing with very wise staff is, is excellent. And then you said being aware of how many cases that you're receiving, or if you're a supervisor, how many cases that you're giving out and what type of cases. Um, that you're giving to your staff. Is there anything yes. else that a really good organization would be doing? 
Um, yes, and now I'll get to that in one moment. I want to I want to stay with that that sense of debriefing because I think mm-hmm. it's important to focus on what type of debriefing because I think most most sectors they're doing debriefing, but it's a debriefing and it's very client centered. It's you know mm-hmm. it's definitely going over the details of what happened, mm-hmm. but this is a very different way of debriefing so that. And one of the ways that we developed is called the resilience debrief, where essentially the, the sole purpose is to allow the person to be attuned to in a therapeutic fashion, but not necessarily by a therapist. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, every organization has you know, more employees than they do mental health support. Um, so we try to think of some ways to do this in a succinct manner that would be safe for both the the person that's listening and holding space and and the person that um, had experienced intense trauma exposure and what we found is that asking them specific questions about what's the impact on them now that this has happened how is this impacting them and really getting them to articulate both the logistical impact, which can be, you know, pretty real, which is if someone commits suicide, if a client commits suicide, there's all sorts of other protocols and procedures that come in place that expand their workload, um, that investigate um, some of the choices that they made along the line, depending on the organization, of course. And then we need to look at what is the, what's the impact on the human being, on that person. And, and I think as, as helpers, we're so trained and we're so attuned to what clients, students, and patients need that sometimes it really takes some time to get to how we're even impacted. Um, and so I start with having them think about well, what are the physical sensations that they're feeling? Um, do they feel tightness? Do they have a headache? Uh, do they feel a little bit of nervousness? Are their muscles tense? Um, so getting them to tap into those physical sensations first is sometimes easier um, and less risky. And then if they feel comfortable with the person who's answering questions, asking the questions, then they can continue on and talk about maybe what what they're really scared or fearful about. Um, mm-hmm. Conversation continues. But it's these conversations are also meant to be not just after a, a crisis, but it could be after just a, you know, like a basic case, a basic, you know, something that, that professionals see every day, but they don't, they don't think it's having an impact. Um, but taking a few moments with a colleague for just maybe seven to eight minutes to talk about, oh, how, how did that client session impact me? I noticed like I, I haven't been drinking enough water. You know, we want to catch we want to catch um, those small changes in ourselves and our colleagues before they start to, to escalate. So I'm looking to make sure that there's, there's a lot of um, safety as far as confidentiality and, and colleagues trusting each other and then being able to have these conversations is really important too. Yeah, I think that's so critical because as professional helpers, we think that we are like we can't be penetrated. We are stronger than the average person. And that's exactly not true. And 
even myself after interviewing, I think my 14th um, teen victim of trafficking, I ended up just going to bed for a week Mm -hmm. and didn't understand why I wanted to go to bed for a week and didn't want to really interact or talk to anybody. And um, that's really not good for social workers when you discover you might not like people or the world. Yeah. <laughs> so you just go to bed. Yeah. Um, so, and it was just the daily sort of undercurrent of stress and daily barrage of trauma mm-hmm. um, that just kept accumulating. So I think that is critical. I'm so glad you brought that up. Every little thing you need to be thinking of Um, checking yourself. How much water did I drink? How much good sleep did I have? How much did I laugh today? Who did I, who did I interact with just for fun today? Um, That I, am I slowly stopping doing that and Mm -hmm. just getting really deep into the work because it's important, but I, I lose me in the work. And so I think that those are critical points. Um, Yes anything else that you think people need to be looking for as a supervisor or looking in themselves? Yeah. And so I think this is where, this is where some of the symptom education does come in really handy um, is when we use it as a tool. I think it's really important that we, when we bring the list of symptoms in that we, that we understand the purpose of why we're bringing it in and that there's something that the, the staff can understand okay, this is what it is, and, but I already have some tools to know what to do about it. I think it, like the positioning of when we bring those symptoms in is really important. And in this conversation, to, to, with the symptoms, if leadership really, really comprehensively understands, not just in individuals' symptoms um, that could occur for an individual, but they understand what are some of the things that can happen interpersonally between employees that they could keep an eye out for and also what could happen on an organizational level if you know they actually have a term called organizational trauma so if an organization is working obviously in a sector where there's high trauma exposure some of those same symptoms can run through the organization as well so if leadership can understand the symptoms really concretely and can be if they're taught to look at how a person comes into the workplace um, and seeing who they are as that person when they arrive. Are they hopeful? Are they extroverted? Are they um, reflective? Do, how are their self-care habits? Are they on time? Do they meet deadlines? When they come in, they're come, you know, hopefully they're coming in in a somewhat balanced way. And then as leadership they can keep an eye on what are those changes as someone goes through the journey of working here for the, for the next six months or year or a few years, because we want to know who that person is in their, in their truest essence to understand when they start to deviate that there's nothing, there's nothing essentially wrong with them. Like they had the capacity to meet deadlines when they came in, but instead of going, oh, you know, so-and-so hasn't met the last three deadlines, they seem to be running late, they're um, disorganized, they're just not um, as patient as they used to be. I noticed their cynicism. 
Well, when you look through the secondary traumatic stress lens, those are all symptoms of secondary traumatic stress. So it provides an opportunity for there to be a very different solution, which is maybe we don't need to, you know, provide the results that would be standard in an organization. Maybe we need to actually look at, oh, what cases were they assigned to? What's happened recently? Had they been here for 10 years? Do we need to get some other type of support in place um, and see if that makes a difference for the person if we give them more of a um, mental health support than, a, um, than some other sort of business-focused assessment? Mm-hmm. And is it possible for that person to come back from that? Because I, you know, I... I have seen people that have burned out, that have been traumatized, I suspect, that then get re-traumatized by their own organization because their productivity isn't up and because they aren't, you know, on time and as as passionate about what they do anymore. Is it possible for people to come back or should they move on to another profession or a different career? That's a really good question. And, you know, it, it's obviously going to depend on the person and the sector and the nature of the job. Um, and people definitely can come back. Uh, and I, I find that there's, you know, I've been running these workshops for the last few years and really fine tuning them. And I've, I've gotten, you know, tons of feedback from people nationally, internationally, and locally. And they find a sense of relief even just by thoroughly understanding how they've been impacted and then being able to put some of the tools in place. Because if you understand the root cause, the doors for the solutions open up. Um, And, you know, obviously there's post-traumatic growth. I always like to cheerlead for post-traumatic growth that, you know, after the journey of healing, there's sort of a rainbow at the end of the journey where if you have processed a lot of what you've gone through that you can um, integrate it in a way that it changes your life um, and your mission for the better. And then I think in the short term, there's ways just to moderate your exposure um, and ways to reach out for for co-regulation. I'm very adamant about the fact that self-care is not enough. Um, And most of the work that I see on secondary traumatic stress um, tends to be very simplistic where it's all about the symptoms, then they list the self-care. And I have a very different point of view, which is most of the professionals I work with have master's degrees or PhDs. They are highly specialized in their area. You know, if they don't have those degrees, they've been working in a highly specialized, highly trained field. And they're all incredibly competent, intelligent, um, and have to have a high amount of discipline to make it through their training. So if it was as easy as taking a bath or eating your lunch in the sunshine, everybody would be able to achieve it. But there's reasons why when we're exposed to secondary trauma, there's reasons why we can't access our basic needs or our basic self-care. And that's why I really advocate for us to put things in place within the workplace setting, because if leaders and managers can put procedures and protocols in place that have employees and leadership coming together to talk about the impact, to support each other, to 
you know, debrief and digest and, and understand what they, the impact is of what they just saw or experienced, our organizations are going to be a lot better off. And I think um, a lot of that stigma around the changes and some of the symptoms that is really going to start to diminish. Mm-hmm. And thank you for saying that self-care is more than a bath and eating your sandwich in the sunshine, because I, that is a very important aha moment, I think, for me, because I never really did, you know, self-care. So get in the bathtub, I did. Go mm-hmm. in the sun, I did. Call your friend up and go to dinner, I did. And, uh, and you know, that was supposed to cause some miraculous. <laughs> it, yeah. just, it just it was kind of really surfacy to me. So um, I like the idea of just digging in and really developing a process and maybe even instituting policy. Because when we do, when we dig in and consider it important, is when people feel healthier and get healthier, I believe. And, you know, if you put it on the person, well, you need to go take a bath and say hello to your family and sit in the sunshine. I mean, that's not enough. No. Um, I think if the organization takes it seriously, then they will institute things that say that they're serious about the health of their staff. Remember, when we're trying to help a broken person, we're going to get hit with the shattered glass. Raymond said, you can't immerse yourself in daily loss and suffering and not be touched by it. That's like trying to walk out in the rain and run through the raindrops. So what they say is true. Put on your oxygen mask first. Then you can put on the oxygen mask of other people. Because the greatest gift that you can give to somebody is to work on your own personal development and give them your best, your best you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. We'll continue our conversation on secondary traumatic stress with Taryn in part two next week. So keep an eye out for its release. And until then, please be safe out there with the coronavirus floating around. Please take care of yourself. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.